Father in heaven, we're thankful for this morning. We're thankful for that scripture reading that reminds us that even if the gospel appears to be chained and stopped, that it is unstoppable. Help us to see that in our own lives, that you can guide and direct and give us victory in our lives, and also guide us to see it as a church family, and also as we see it fulfilled as we take the gospel to the Anderson South County of Shasta County and beyond. Give us this wisdom and guidance. Help us to see that it is unstoppable, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the last of our Community of Oneness series. From here, we go into an Adventist Heritage Month where we focus on the soon coming of Jesus Christ and our family of faith. But as we look at the end of Acts, we actually find it's the beginning of a movement. A movement, well, if we look back even before that, a continuation of a movement, a oneness movement from the beginning of time all the way down to the time of Jesus to the book of Acts, and it comes all the way down to our time here today. This movement, though, does face opposition. Every time the gospel begins to move forward, we find that the devil tries to bring disunity into the church, tries to bring distraction, tries to bring all manner of attacks to stop the gospel. But will he succeed? Not if we let, don't let him. As I was looking at one of these stories that's happened in the Middle East, uh, this individual is a pastor, and his name is Farshid Fatih. He's an Iranian Christian pastor. And back in 2010, he was arrested for being chief director of foreign organizations in Iran and gathering funds for these organizations. Simply put, he's organizing church groups, organizing the sharing of God's word, and accepting offerings to support the work of God in Iran. So imagine that charge coming against you, someone calling you chief director of foreign organizations in Iran, in the U.S., and gathering funds for that organization. How would you react to that? Well, it all began to be coming to a head, and it says about 6 a.m. on December 26, 2010, security officials wearing planes clothes surrounded the home of Farshid's father. He was staying at his father's house. When Farshid's father opened the door to go to work, they forced their way into the home. They woke everyone in the house, including Farshid and his family who had stayed there Christmas night. So imagine there you are, that time of year where it seems to be a time of goodwill. You're gathered as a family for a family night, and the door comes bursting open. Goes on, the authorities began a thorough search of the house. They questioned everyone present, and after completing the search, they allowed Pastor Farshid to take his daughter to school. So it's strange, right? These people show up in plains clothes, they burst into the house, they wake everybody up, they question you. And then they say, okay, go ahead and take your little girl to school. At the same time, another part of the town, another group of government agents attacked Farshid Fadi's own house, the pastor's house. So he's not there because he's over here with his dad and his family. And they go to his house, government officials do, simultaneously to arrest him, not knowing that they, they were not home. A source told Mohabit News. They broke into the house illegally, destroying the entrance door, and search everywhere, confiscating whatever they thought could be used as evidence against Mr. Fatih, including his photos, flash drives, camera memory cards, the hard drive of his PC, his laptop documents, and even some money and his gas card. After authorities from the two raids communicated, that's a novel idea of communication, after they communicated, they realized they had mistakenly allowed Farshid to leave his father's house and take his little girl to school, right? The agents threatened the family then 
with harsh consequences if he, the pastor, did not return. But an hour later, Farshid did return. Authorities then began beating him, insulting him, and handcuffed him before transferring him to really a maximum security prison for political uh, prisoners. From there, he was taken to Evan Prison. He spent several months in, sol months in solitary confinement. If you've ever been in jail or know somebody who's been in jail, I mean, solitary confinement is one thing, but here this guy is for months in solitary confinement. The jails are not as nice as they are here as well. A Christian prisoner who was Farshid's cellmate once he got out of the solitary confinement, he asked Farshid, why did you return home knowing that the agents were waiting to arrest you? I couldn't leave my wife and children alone. So here's somebody who's in jail because of their faith. Furthermore, when it came to time, he could have easily have ducked out of there and left, but he thought of his family, and when he began to threaten his family, he said, their needs are above mine. He comes back, is arrested, and finds himself, to this very morning, he is still imprisoned. And I imagine that story, and I imagine to myself, just the love of that father for his family. He could have easily gotten away, but he loved his family that much that he would undergo imprisonment himself so they would not be hurt. And I think of the biggest plan, of, biggest plan in all history for that to happen for each one of us, how God sends Jesus, who doesn't care about the harm that will come to himself, but he comes in human flesh, allows himself to be beaten, spit upon, imprisoned, mocked, trialed, and killed for each one of us. And the experience of this dear Christian pastor is merely an echo of the life of Jesus, that same giving heart. And imagine God nowadays, as he looks around the world and he sees all the suffering, and, and we find in the Bible it says a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years like a day. We, we, we like the thousand years like a day part, like eternity can fly by really quick in God's mind, but imagine each day seeming like a thousand years, the whole world in slow motion, seeing all the suffering, seeing all the crime, seeing all the hurt, all in one day. And that's what God has before him every day. And so when we pray as a church for God to give us a mission and a vision, God already has one. We just need to ask him to reveal it to us. And part of that mission is to reach that very area where this pastor is still imprisoned to today. It's called the 1040 window. And I think if God were to be in human flesh again, you would find him in the 1040 window. Because that's where it appears that the gospel is hindered. Some of you don't know exactly what I'm talking about when I say 1040 window. Look at this map here on the screen. You find, it's a, really, it's coordinates on a map, 10 degrees and 40 degrees. So what you find here is this main area right here. Northern Africa, you're finding up in the Middle East, even into Spain and different parts of what we call Southeastern Europe. Over here into Israel, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, India, all the way over here. This is what we call the 1040 window. 60% of the world's population lives there. You think that God's heart isn't somehow pouring out resources from heaven into that area? And as you look at the persecution map then, notice this correlation there. That's the area of the most horrendous persecution in the world, is the very place where 60% of the world's population lives, and that's the place our last frontier of missions, and yet it's the most severe as far as persecution. 
that pastor's story can be repeated time and time again. But as I think of that story, I say to myself, surely God's got a plan for that area. Surely he has brought it to our attention to pray for that area. And surely the gospel will not be hindered in that area. It will go forward. So today we're going to discover that though the world tries to stop the messengers like they did to that pastor, they try to stop the members, they try to stop it all, God will get the message out. That he cares for each person eternally. That he knows them by name. That he has a plan for their, not only their life here and now, but a plan for a future and a hope, the likes of which this world has never seen. That good news will go to all the world, regardless of the circumstances. And that messenger who's sitting there in jail in solitary confinement, he's not alone. He's not alone. Uh, you look in the book of Acts, we'll find parallels to past this pastor's experience. We've been looking at Stephen. We've been looking at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We looked at Advent prayer and how we can pray and, and, and try to prayerfully ask God to usher in his second coming. But as you continue on in the book of Acts, you find persecution in chapter 8. You find, though, that Saul, that one who was a great persecutor, has been converted by Jesus Christ. That is a miracle, but it's taken place. The gospel begins to go to the Gentiles, even though the Jews begin to oppose it. Paul, one of the ones who they try to stop, he's commissioned as a missionary, goes on these missionary journeys, encounters opposition at Jerusalem, and finally he appeals to Caesar makes his journey to Rome, and we're going to find this morning he's not alone in that journey, that God is right there with him, even though he faces opposition, even though they think they're stopping him and putting him in chains, the gospel is unstoppable. And so let's look at this chapter, chapter 27, and you say, well, you skipped over quite a bit. Yes, I did. You can read that and experience the rest of that. I told you this is a six-part series, and here is actually our last installment. Acts chapter 28, verse 14 if you read the context, he's on his journey there, and along the way they find brethren and were desiring to tarry with them seven days. Eventually they go toward Rome, and from thence, when the brethren heard of us, they came to meet us as far as Apiforum, 40 miles roughly, and the three taverns, whom when Paul saw, he thanked God and took courage. And when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard, but Paul was suffered to dwell by himself with a soldier that kept him. Like I said, that story of that pastor in Iran has been repeated from years before that. Those who stand for God and his message, we find they appear to not have a very good welcome in this world. But here we find a kingly welcome of Paul. How do I say that? Why do I say that? Notice he's going towards Rome and brethren, believers, people of the family of God, they hear about it. And to travel 40 miles in that day and era, how long do you think it would take you? Even if you had a donkey, you're looking at several hours, right? <laughs> some, some time period there. And these people were traveling 40 miles from that area and the th area of the three taverns, about 40 miles there. And imagine Paul, there he is, being escorted towards Rome, and he sees believers begin to come towards him along the way. One commentator says it's almost like they escort him like a king to his his uh, headquarters. No wonder he takes courage. The believers are right there with him during that time. Are we there for each other during the troublesome times? That's what a community of oneness is. That even in hard times, we are there for each other as well as in the good. He takes courage. He's thanking God. 
And then he, gets himself, he finds himself in prison. But that community of oneness, imagine there you are in chains. You've got the soldier right there next to you. But then you've got a very vivid memory just a few hours before. Here's, imagine seeing all of those believers coming out to greet you along the way. You're thanking God for them. And now you're in the jail cell. But God can bring that memory back to your mind. And you can still be thankful even as you are in chains. That's what our scripture reading was talking about. Even though he was in chains, the gospel was not chained. And he remembered that community of faith that was supporting him. He's not alone in that. We find Paul doesn't stop once he gets jailed. He calls together local Jewish leaders. Eventually they set a time for Paul to present his belief in Jesus. And what's interesting is that it's not just a belief in some some teacher, it's actually he's going to present to them why he believes Jesus is the Messiah, why they should unite with him in sharing this gospel. You look down there in verse 22 and 21, 21 and 22, they said to him, we have neither received letters from Judea, that's where he had the problem, concerning you, nor have any of the brethren come here and reported or spoken anything bad about you. But we desire to hear of thee what thou thinkest. For as concerning this sect or this, this group of believers, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. People are trying to hinder it. We've heard that, but we have had no, no official report. Paul then testifies to them about the kingdom of God. He uses the scriptures. It says here in verse 23, And when they had appointed him a day, there came many to him in his lodging. Paul just can't keep people away. As he's being escorted in chains, the believers come out and greet him. As he's there in a cell, people come to him for answers about this Jesus. Many people come into his lodging. He expounded and testified the kingdom of God to them, persuading them concerning Jesus. Persuading them. Good word there, isn't it? It's a good thing to persuade people about Jesus. Show them the evidence. Show them why you believe in him both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets, from morning till evening. So imagine people coming to him all day long, maybe even a group of them at times. And surely there's some dialogue going on here. It's not just him preaching a sermon at him. They're, they're having some give and take. There's a study going on here. From Moses and the prophets, all the Bible testifies of Jesus, and he uses that. Some were persuaded in verse 24. Others didn't believe in verse 24. Verse 25, we find them even getting to the point where as a group, they begin to argue back and forth amongst themselves. And at that, it's at that point that Paul pulls out a specific scripture. Quoting from Isaiah, and if you compare it from the Greek New Testament to the Hebrew Old Testament, or from your English from one to the other, sometimes you'll find there's, there's some differences. But if you compare the Greek of Book of Acts to the Greek Old Testament, you'll find he's quoting word for word out of the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament. For the heart of this people is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes have they closed, lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. Interesting. He's quoting Isaiah. But if you were an, someone in the ancient Near East who knew your scrolls, <laughs> knew your book, you would know that he was leaving something out. 25 and 26, actually. I should have written that down there. And so this is where our young people have their FBI sheet. And we can turn there in our Bibles and look at Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. Let's 
quoting from not just the law and the prophets, but a particular prophet. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Earthly kings can come and go, but who is still ruling? The text is very clear. God is ruling. The Lord is ruling. There he is sitting on a throne. There he is. The temple is filled with his glory. And above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one cried, and another said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. For the whole earth is full of his glory. This is what Paul is referring to. And so imagine Paul takes a segment, quite a few verses down, out of that chapter. But this is what the chapter begins with. So what's Paul saying? He's linking Jesus the Messiah with the one who sits on the throne. Why would he make that link? Remember Stephen? Stephen saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the throne of God. Normally he sits, but he stands when a verdict goes out of innocence. Paul somehow makes that connection, and he continues that same type of argument that Stephen has. And here you find he's pointing to Jesus as being the Lord. So if you had known Isaiah, and you noticed where Paul kind of took his chunk way down here, if you were a good student back then, you would have known what was before and what was after that. And so they would have known that before that, it describes the Lord sitting on a throne, high and exalted, the train of his robe filling the temple, and the angels crying, holy, holy, holy. The earth is full of his glory. And the text goes on. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts, the threshold shook. The temple was filled with smoke. That's reminiscent of the glory in the temple in Exodus. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. So who is this King that Isaiah sees? Paul believes it's Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's the king. He's risen. He's up in heaven. But he didn't quote this particular part of the text, did he? It's kind of like an inverse. You quote something and people know, yeah, I've heard that before. You quote part of it and they know that you left something out. That's what he's doing here. They would have known that Paul was also believing that he lived among a people of unclean lips. Who were the people in Isaiah's day? It was the people of Israel in Jerusalem. And so the angel comes and takes the coal and touches his lips. Look, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Hasn't Paul responded to that same question? That's why he's even there. Once again, if they would have known the text, they would have been knowing that Paul is coming as a spokesperson on behalf of God. And he said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, Go and tell this people. What is this people? That's the people of God. That's the people of Jerusalem and Judah. That's the very ones who have persecuted Paul. Now Paul is over here in another place, and he's testifying on behalf of Jesus. And now you have the quotation that Paul cites. Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Ever seeing, never perceiving. You notice everything that was before it? Yes. And after it, make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. 
Then I said, for how long, O Lord? I was, how long is our hearts going to be so calloused and hard? And he said to me, until the cities lie ruined without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted, fields ruined and ravaged, till the Lord has sent everyone far away, and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will be laid waste. goes on, the holy seed will be a stump in the land. There will still be a remnant. So why would he cite this whole chapter? And just that one little verse right in the middle of it. Because he's telling them, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is the Messiah. You have the hard hearts, and you need to listen. Don't argue amongst yourself, but listen. This is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And if you do not, if you do not, the destruction that happened to Jerusalem back then will happen again. You find Jesus himself said, not one stone will be left upon another. It hasn't happened yet in the book, as, as of the writing of the book of Acts, but it is looked forward to. It is a, another moment in the plan of salvation. A time is coming ahead of Paul's preaching when the city will be destroyed. It's like a call to the Jews and saying, it's not too late. Yes, time as a people has expired, but each one of you can turn to Jesus. And so, he wants them not to have the attitude of the Judeans. He wants them to listen to his testimony, just like eventually the testimony of Stephen took root in his heart. But time is running out. Remember that prophecy there? We find Stephen comes as the last prophet to the nation of Israel, saying, time is up. And there's no call to repentance. It's just time is up. And now here comes Paul, a convert of that last message of Stephen. And he's coming along, sharing that and saying, go to Jesus, go to Jesus. You do not have to be destroyed. And so that part one was for the Jews. Paul, in a way, is echoing the message of Stephen. And it goes on and it says, if you don't do it, people of Israel, be it known therefore unto you that the salvation of God is sent to the Gentiles. They will hear it. And when he said these words, the Jews departed, had great reasoning or argued amongst themselves. So here they are. He cites a verse that says, Jesus is the one on the throne. Don't close your ears to him. If you do continue to close your ears, your city will be destroyed. Jerusalem and the worship as you know it will be destroyed. And then the gospel will be sent to the Gentiles and they will take it to the world. And here we are sitting here today because of that. We know that some of them, and even some teachers of the law in the book of Acts, did turn their hearts to Jesus. So there is some good news individually, but as a nation, we find Paul and the last prophets to the Jews there were saying, turn, turn, accept Jesus as the Messiah. And the same thing comes to us. Here we are 1,810 years later and then some. Another time prophecy has come and gone. And Jesus is saying, will you accept me as your Savior? Will you proclaim me to this world? If you don't do it, I'll even get little rocks to cry out. They'll do it. And so I want God to use us. I don't want to be a hindrance to the gospel. Paul is, in essence, saying, even if you don't do it, the gospel is still unstoppable. It will still go to the world, regardless of the circumstances. And so Paul's trip to Rome was not just happenstance. It was actually an appeal to those group of people there. And persecution continues to go throughout our world. But notice how the text ends. And notice how this is the last verses, the last verses of the book of Acts. Verse 30, And Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house. He had to pay for that. 
If you didn't pay for it, you had to have friends support you, otherwise you would have malnourishment and other poor conditions. And he received all that came unto him. And notice there would be one, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding, or no one tried to stop him, or free, without, with freedom and without hindrance. So the book of Acts ends with that very verse right there. It says, there he is teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence and boldness, and no one could stop him. So the book of Acts ends with a statement, no one could stop him. Now, the book of Acts, some believe it could have been written just before or right after the death of Paul. It could have, they could have added a whole lot more to the story. But the book of, book of Acts leaves you hanging because they want you to experience the book of Acts. They want you to say, well, can the gospel still be in my life? Will it be hindered in my life? Or will it go forward with power? It leaves you saying, according to the book of Acts, the message of Jesus will go forward to the whole world. It cannot be stopped. So you look at that area of Rome, and you look at how Paul was there in Rome, but also the gospel was over in here. It began to spread. It goes all the way up into there. Would we say it was stoppable or unstoppable in the first century? Unstoppable. Let's go on. We find in the 1040 window of today, where 60% of the world population is there, if the gospel was unstoppable back then, surely it can be unstoppable again there in that very place, that cradle of civilization, that place that Paul walked years ago. He can do it again, just like he's done it in the past. And so the gospel will even go to that area there. And even in all these persecution zones, stoppable or unstoppable? According to the book of Acts, it's unstoppable. It's going to all of those places, and then the end will come. Nothing will be able to stop it. What about here in the United States? Some estimates say 50 to 60% are not churched in the U.S. We have a rising number of Wiccans and New Age belief systems out there who are converting many people compared to the Christian faith. And yet, we find the Seventh-day Adventist Church is the fastest-growing Protestant denomination in North America at 1%. Slow growth, but still the fastest, which means that the whole rest of Christianity is really doing poorly as well. 1% growth is, is not even very good at all. And in Shasta County, if you look at the demographics, we'll look at more this afternoon, there's 73% that are not claimed by any church. Doesn't mean they're unchurched, and in essence, don't believe, but that just means they're not members on any membership role. And then if you take away 50% of your members who are on your membership role who don't even attend, then you, can, you could even diminish the number of church attendees, you'd still be looking at roughly 73% of the people in this county, for whatever reason, are not united with the church. It's a big area to work with. You look at the American Religious Data Archive for that information. So I look at this area and say, it's unstoppable here too, isn't it? Unless we get in the way. We could hinder it, or we can help it. Your church must remain united. The devil's going to come in and get you irritated with a brother or sister over the smallest things in the next near future. That's his goal. That's his goal, so he can divide you and conquer you as a church. If a different spirit comes into this church, that good feeling spirit that you've been feeling for weeks and months is going to go away unless you remain united and stand firm. And especially as you appoint having evangelistic meetings, he will come in like a flood to divide you. You must remain united. 
and stand firm. Go back to that story of Farshid. There he was in jail. Remember that Newtown, Connecticut tragedy? He gets word somehow in his jail cell of that tragedy. And instead of feeling sad and sad about his situation, he writes a letter. It says to the fathers and mothers who lost their precious children in the Connecticut tragedy, I really don't know what word in the world could comfort you, what relief could be helpful for your broken heart, and which hand could clean the tears which fall from your cheeks. Imagine that fatherly love that he's expressing there. I just want to say, I'm so sorry, and you're in my prayers. I'm sure that these high walls cannot stop my prayers. He sees it as unstoppable. You can't stop him from praying. Before this tragedy happened, I was thinking about my suffering that I'm going through because of my Lord Jesus Christ, especially being far away from my lovely kids. But when I imagine how hard your pain is, I forget my sufferings. Imagine if we did that for each other. Think about what other people are going through. Because I know by God's grace, I will see my kids at the latest in 2017 when I come out of prison. But unfortunately, you have to wait a bit longer. So I would like to express my deepest sorrow for your loss. I believe we will have enough time in heaven with our lovely children forever. There's no gun there. There's no prison. There's no pain. In the hope of that glorious day, your brother in Christ from prison in Iran, Farshid Fatih, December 2012. Unbeknownst to us, as we keep following this story, we find that those prisoners were revolting against the guards because of the harsh treatment. And back this April, when I began pastoring here, a hundred guards rushed into the area where he was at and others, and they trampled people and beat them up. And, and he suffered a, a broken foot and some other injuries, continues to suffer. But he still has this kind of unshakable faith. The gospel is unstoppable to him, even in that jail cell. And here we are, communion day. And every time we partake of this, we're saying that we're proclaiming the Lord's death, his suffering, the unstoppableness of the gospel until he comes. Isn't that true? You know, we find that the three angels' message will go to all the world. The end will come. That ugly lamb-like beast that speaks like a dragon, well, you know what? It will be silenced eventually, will it not? I want it to be silenced by the good news of the gospel that proclaims with a loud cry throughout this world. And then the object that we've been looking for is a lot closer than we ever thought. It's right there at the horizon. Jesus will come. He will return. And this community of oneness idea will be a reality forever. And so this morning we do celebrate communion. But with the realization that this should unite us, this should be a symbol that we are taking the gospel to the world until Jesus comes to eat and drink with us anew in his Father's kingdom. So the communion becomes, for today, a symbol of the unstoppable nature of the gospel. If you notice in your bulletin, there will be ways that you can participate. Inside there on the inside is direction, uh, excuse me, um, where it has the order of service. We begin with the ordinance of humility with a foot washing. And if you want to join us for that, the women will be in Hinton Hall East. Families will be in Hinton Hall West. Men in room four. And there'll be a children's story and song time in room one for those who want to have their children there while they participate. Parents, you're encouraged to uh, have your children go to room one for the singing and story, or if they go with you, then just explain to them what it means, and hopefully they can participate in a, in a way that is meaningful as well, and prayerful and quiet, quiet way as well. But we'll have the foot washing, and then we'll meet back here and partake 
of these emblems. Let's pray. Father, bless each one as we partake. Help us to serve each other just the way that you've served us with love. And then help us to celebrate the blessedness of salvation, the blessed assurance in Jesus as we partake of these emblems after the foot washing. Guide each one to search their hearts, see where they are at with you, and may the gospel be unstoppable in their hearts and my heart today. In Jesus' name, amen.